everyone, and welcome to another episode of Picture Blurfect. I'm your host, Naomi Harlembachis Wilkerson, and I'm so glad that you're joining today. We've got a great episode lined up. And, you know, before we get started, I always want to ask and check in with everyone. How are you doing? How are you feeling? And, you know, how's, how's the stress levels? Because my stress levels are a bit through the roof at the moment, and it comes and goes, right? And I've I noticed that when I'm stressed, I, I tend to feel and hear that eating disorder voice a little bit more, and I, I tend to not want to eat or, or listen to the alarms on my phone that say, hey, it's snack time, but I have to even be more vigilant and be more just fighting back against the eating disorder. It's just really hard. So if you're going through that, if you know you're you're noticing that that voice is a lot louder this week, or, or maybe you're coming out of it and you're feeling better this week, which is great. But if you are suffering right now and just going through a really hard time, I encourage you not to bottle it up so much. Uh, I tend to do that as well, and my husband can read me really well, and he's like, what's wrong? You have that face. Uh, and I have to kind of tell him, you know, oh, I'm, I'm just not feeling so great and he really just encourages me but if the more we don't and and we bottle it up the more it festers and then we can allow the eating disorder to win and get worse and I encourage you to listen to this conversation specifically because we actually get into the reasoning and the neurobiology of why our brains kind of are wired in the way that they are, why our brains are telling us to ignore and override the hunger cues. Why do some people have that, specifically those with eating disorders, and others don't? It's just truly fascinating work. And my guest today is Dr. Guido Frank, and he talks about this so elegantly because he just published a study in JAMA Psychiatry just last month. And I encourage you to read this paper, even though I, I know it can be a bit challenging to read a scientific paper and scientific literature in general is, can be very daunting and overwhelming. But that's what this podcast is for, right? We're going to break down that research in a way that's understandable and, and relatable to everyone that, that is willing to learn and understand this. So Dr. Frank, he's, he's a terrific person. I could have talked to him all day because his research is just so fascinating. He's a practicing psychiatrist and a professor um, in psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego. And I encourage you to check it out. Um, I will include his profile and his most recent paper that we really talk about in this episode in the episode description. So I encourage you to click that link and, and follow along if you can. So without further ado, Dr. Guido Frank. Let's go ahead and get started. We are here with Guido Frank, Dr. Guido Frank. Thank you so much for joining Picture Blurfect. So before we get started, please tell us a little bit about yourself, your educational background, your current position, and what your lab currently studies. Well, thank you so much for having me on today. Uh, I'm a professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego. I went to medical school in Munich, Germany. And then after that, I uh, spent three years at what's called a psychosomatic hospital. So that's a, a place where you uh, primarily use psychotherapy to treat uh, folks with psychiatric uh, disorders. And uh, there I, in fact, got into uh, eating disorders research. And uh, after that, I went to Pittsburgh, uh, joined World Case Group to uh, learn about research, really, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, then did uh, adult and child psychiatry training, did research training, 
and uh, have been uh, working uh, through NIH-funded studies on understanding uh, the neurobiology of eating disorders. I want to say that, that my background of having at first the psychotherapy training quite extensively, and then later on this more biological training puts me in a relatively unique position. Yeah. Because I, I think I, I can see things relatively unbiased and uh, uh, sort of really try to, to bring what we see in the clinic into the lab and then from the lab back into the clinic um, with uh, a hopefully relatively unbiased uh, perspective. Yeah, and well-rounded. I think we often lose one one or both sides when, when it comes to treatment, especially of psychiatric diseases. So that is a critical perspective. So what led you specifically? So you, you said that you were introduced to eating disorder research, but what made you decide to pursue it full-time? What, what part of it um, appealed to you? Yeah, so I got into eating disorders research truly by chance. The first uh, unit I worked at was an eating disorders unit at that psychosomatic hospital. And uh, to be quite frankly, I always enjoyed tremendously working with individuals with eating disorders. It seemed to be a very, um, I don't know, a wonderful population to work with. These are people mm. who are hardworking. Uh, they, they have so many um, talents and, and, and abilities, yet there's this eating disorder that gets in the way and mm -hmm. that, that uh, then really hinders your progress. Yeah. And on one hand side, there are the perfectionistic traits that make people achieve so much, right? On the other hand, it, it gets in the way after all. And, uh, you know, at the time, uh, it's actually, we started uh, on a study, uh, studying the pancreas and how the pancreatic size changes during refeeding and, and so forth. Oh, and, wow. Uh, but then uh, the picture of eating disorders is so complex, right? There's so many factors involved in yeah. what may have led to the problem, what perpetuates the problem. And they found it very confusing, quite frankly. And they found <laughs> it very, you know, and then I was also working with other patient groups with primarily depression or anxiety, things like that. Yeah. And like, I would like to bring some order into this. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and then there was the opportunity to pursue research and uh, really spend time uh, on, a, on a more uh, structured and in-depth research endeavor. And uh, that's something that I, I jumped on because I felt like, well, maybe that helps me to, to, to bring some understanding into that. And then I felt like I was really lucky because um, at that time, neuroscience and cognitive science psychology really took off with understanding how the brain really works. There were the neurotransmitter studies where people looked into the brain uh, really becoming strong. Uh, then blood flow studies that help us more understand connectivity and where things happen in the brain became uh, made huge progress. And, uh, and then I felt... Uh, gosh, this is really something uh, that becomes tangible. This is yeah. something uh, I can I can understand, and then I also can tell my families, right, how this <laughs> works, because yeah. it, it is such a, a complicated problem to understand. But if you help a family to understand what might be happening, I think it, it, it's an important step towards recovery. 
Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting. You mentioned how you enjoy working with those with, with eating disorders. Um, I, I was told by several doctors that most individuals with eating disorders are very high functioning. They tend to be perfectionists, perfectionists. And I, always, I could get along with others that had a similar experience than me. I mean, because we had similar personalities. So it's interesting that you, you mentioned that. Um, and I was told during recovery that, you know, look at how much you are getting done right now. Imagine how much you could get done if you fed yourself appropriately and were, had energy to do it. Cause I could do a lot, but I had no energy because I wasn't eating. Uh, so that's, that's interesting that, that you also noted that. Um, so your most recent study, uh, which, which is what drew me to you and your work, uh, was published late last month in JAMA uh, Psychiatry, and it looked at whether eating disorder behavior alters the brain's reward processing system. So can you explain that study to listeners and what you and your colleagues found? So for years, we have been trying to understand the brain reward system in eating disorders, and uh, I've been trying to somewhat separate cognitive emotional aspects that might make you feel upset or in a better mood that have an effect on eating, how much you eat, what you eat or not. I try to separate that somewhat from uh, more biological aspects of food intake. And for years, we have been now uh, studying the reward system, but in smaller studies. And we got an idea which was also rooted in uh, animal and basic science research that the, the reward system specifically related to the dopamine chemical in the brain uh, might have an important aspect. Mm. And when you think about uh, a person having an eating disorder, the person might still um, maybe enjoy the food, but there's a lot of anxiety involved and there's a lot of problem with approaching the food, right? So making yeah. the step to, to, to pick up the food and eat it, that's a, right. that's a, that's a crucial hurdle, right? Right. right. And uh, the dopamine system is important in this motivational aspect. It's important in this aspect of making you get out of your chair and go for the uh, piece of uh, cake, pizza, or whatnot. Yeah. Think about Parkinson's, right? In that illness, the dopamine system is, is ill, so to speak, and, and people cannot move well. People right. cannot really uh, move smoothly, and uh, the dopamine system psychologically has similar uh, functions, right? It makes you do stuff. Yeah. And uh, the basic science literature suggested that uh, when, you, when you change your eating a lot, then you also change your dopamine system. Now, there's the question about the chicken or the egg and how do they sort of affect each other. Uh, we have, you know, for a long time, and, and there's a lot of research still going on that tries to understand what's the origin, origin of an eating disorder, right? Maybe genetic uh, factors and so forth. But it's very difficult. It's very hard yeah. to, to uh, find those aspects. My lab has mostly focused on understanding the here and now mm. and what happens maybe during the eating disorder that it interferes with getting better. Gotcha. That interferes with recovery. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so what we have been using is, is a model, it's called the prediction error model, where you receive expectedly or unexpectedly, uh, let's say, sugar stimuli. 
Okay. And how it works is folks are in a brain scanner, a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner that uses magnetism to understand blood flow. Mm -hmm. You can measure where uh, action is happening. And then uh, in the scanner, folks, they learn to, they looked at the screen and they learn to associate colorful shapes with tastes. And sometimes they got the taste, which was either sugar water or water or nothing, expectedly. So they thought sugar water was coming and sugar was, in fact, coming. They thought mm -hmm. nothing was coming and, in fact, nothing was delivered. And sometimes they thought there would be no taste delivery and they received sugar water. Uh -huh. Or they thought sugar water was coming and they received nothing. Okay. And when you set up a paradigm like that, then you can specifically focus on the dopamine-related reward circuitry. Mm -hmm. So in other words, let's say you have a, a friend who you share an office with and that person unexpectedly uh, brings you a piece of cake and let's say yep. you enjoy cake, you might come to your desk and you're like, oh, that's awesome, wonderful. I have, uh, you know, I got cake here. That's when the dopamine search happens. That's an unexpected receipt. Uh, on the other hand, if you're used to this friendly colleague always doing that for you, and she doesn't do that one day because she's maybe out sick, then you expect it getting the cake. But there is no cake, and then you have a dip in the gotcha. dopamine. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's sort of the dopamine system. And we then could study brain regions related to the reward system, related to the dopamine circuitry by expected or unexpected getting these sugar stimuli. And what we found was, uh, first, that the lower the body mass index was, the lower the relationship between weight and height, mm -hmm. people who had lost a lot of weight, folks with anorexia nervosa, for instance, uh, their reward system was very much sensitized. Mm. reacted much stronger than, uh, than folks with a higher body mass index with a higher weight. In fact, the lower your weight was, the stronger this reward system response was. The higher your weight was, the lower the response system, uh, the response of the system was. Interesting. So an inverse relationship. Yeah. And that's consistent with what the animal literature tells us. You lose a lot of weight in the system sensitizers. Okay? Yeah. Now, here's the, here's the tricky part. You might say if somebody who's underweight and their reward system is very sensitized, that person should go for the food, right? Right, right. Um, now, it here becomes tricky because these same regions that drive you to approach food, they might also drive you to avoid food. Mm. And it all depends on where you're cognitive emotional mindset is at. Yeah. It depends on your cognitive bias. Yeah. Do I like food? Am I afraid of food? Yeah. And in fact, uh, in this large group of folks with eating disorders, to be exact, 197 across wow. the whole spectrum with anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder, um, they, uh, they all 
were kind of negatively biased towards the food. They all had high body dissatisfaction. They all had a drive for thinness. Um, so they were all anxious around food, right? And what we saw is in sort of a different circuitry that the body dissatisfaction that they all shared was highly related to a circuitry in the brain that helps you stop eating. Oh. So let's say you're in the, please interrupt me if I'm. <laughs> no, no, I, I love this. I love this. Keep going. <laughs> uh, so let's say you're in the woods, you have a picnic and you have your sandwich and you're really hungry and you enjoy. And all of a sudden the bear comes along, right? Could happen. And then you have to make a split second decision. Am I going to eat the sandwich because I'm really so hungry, but at the risk of getting eaten by the bear? Or should I drop the sandwich, let that go, override my hunger signal, yeah. and run to save my life? Right? And this is a circuitry from an area that's called the ventral striatum, so just deep down in the brain, uh, that goes towards the hypothalamus, which is an area that, that uh, sort of picks up hunger cues and stuff like that okay. and tells you that you're hungry. And this circuitry can override the hypothalamus and make you stop eating and run because something triggered your anxiety. Okay. Now, again, all folks being this sort of this circuitry to trigger this food control, the stop eating circuitry was activated when they tasted sugar. Oh. However, this drive to override the circuitry was strengthened by this reward system response. Okay. So remember, the folks who were underweight, yeah. they had an excessive reward circuit response. Right. And the stronger that was, the stronger the food control circuitry was. So it's a positive feedback loop. It was a positive feedback loop, right? Okay. But in the in the opposite direction that you and I might have, or somebody else right. at this point, right, where we, we want to eat something when you're hungry, there, food here, the sugar tasting as a reflection of food probably stimulates a lot of anxiety. Yeah, anxiety triggers this food control circuitry, and the lower you already are the more weight you already have lost, mm. the better the circuitry works. Wow. And how can that be? Because these dopaminergic circuits uh -huh. that typically should us approach food when we are hungry, they can also do the opposite. They can also make you avoid situations. Again, yes. it's depending on your fear, on your cognitive bias, on your... Uh, you know, on your motivation. Do, do, do I want to eat? Do I not want to eat? On a right. It's kind of becomes a com complex and complicated yeah. uh, circuitry. And there's like different aspects to it. Right. And I think that's also why it is so hard to understand eating disorders. Mm -hmm. I think uh, to, to, to summarize a little bit, um, not to eat and, and essentially starve until you're close to death or you might even die yeah. is so against what nature typically tells us, right? right? 
So I think it makes a lot of sense that there are different circuits involved that right. do not work together, that this can happen in the first place. Right. So it's partly evolution, why this is occurring. Um, I'm wondering, I'm thinking because of the dopaminergic cells that are, I'm, I'm guessing, overactive with that circuitry that's telling the body to override mm -hmm. the hunger food, the food cues and the hunger cues. Mm -hmm. Is there an intervention where you can remove or lessen the dopaminergic activity kind of like you know we a lot of individuals myself included are were prescribed prozac because there's not enough serotonin in the brain mm -hmm. and you want to put more serotonin between those synapses mm -hmm. are there are there interventions like that or is that going too far and we don't know so um, the Prozac is a medication typically prescribed for anxiety depression I do want to make a point it is really important to treat anxiety and depression. In the past, people sometimes thought um, if the eating disorder is treated, everything else falls into place. Mm -hmm. I have not necessarily seen that. Right. And I do think medication can have an important point in, yeah. in helping with treatment. I always, when I talk with families, I say, look, what do you think is easier to juggle, one ball or three balls, right? right. Three balls are much harder. And if you anxiety and depression are better, then it's most likely easier to get out of the eating disorder Absolutely. and work on that. But to really specifically answer your question, yes, we are working on that. And okay. we are uh, using uh, dopaminergic medication with the help of normalizing this, uh, this circuitry. Okay. Now, uh, we're sort of just in the, in the beginning stages to better understand that. Yeah. But... Uh, what we are trying to do is we're trying to, on one hand side, block overactive receptors at times. And on the other hand, give dopamine receptor stimulation yeah. to help with cognitive flexibility and to help with food approach. Mm. So, uh, but I, I don't want to oversell it uh, and I don't yeah. want to be uh, going too far, uh, but we are, um, you know, we have published on, on certain medications and uh, we're, we're still uh, now doing also brain imaging studies where we specifically try to tease apart the effects of those medications on those circuits yeah. and how they might affect uh, learning cognitive flexibility and things like that. Right, right. Um, and I'm thinking, it's still very early, but I'm thinking you mentioned Parkinson's before, which else is also very much relies on dopamine, and they've shown that L-DOPA can mm -hmm. help in the treatment of Parkinson's. I'm wondering if maybe that's the next step for yeah. eating disorders. Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting. Um, so L-DOPA essentially raises your dopamine level. Right. right? Uh, and then... That could be helpful because you deplete yourself by food restriction of those uh, amino acids that you make then the neurotransmitters out. But um, Ken Berich, he showed in very elegant studies that uh, in the nucleus accumbens, which is a part of the reward system, in higher or lower parts, whether you stimulated uh, the, let's say, only the D1, uh, dopamine D1 receptor or the dopamine D1 and D2 receptor together, mm. 
Uh-huh. That then had an effect on whether you were or the animal was approaching food or was avoiding food. Gotcha. And that really depended on the uh, circumstance the animal was in. Yeah. So let's say the animal was in a friendly situation, peaceful, there was access to food. Then uh, let's say the dopamine D1 receptor gets activated to approach food. Let's say it's a hostile situation. There are intruders in the cage. Then the D1 and the D2 receptor get activated together, Yeah. which then mediate uh, a sort of a hostile avoidance behavior. Interesting. So you see how complicated this gets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it sounds like a perfect study to use. Um, and he probably did this Ken Barrage that you mentioned, optogenetics, um, where you can activate specifically certain receptors and then oh, turn them off. They, right, that, exactly. They, they have uh, the, the most recent studies, they have been using optogenetics to, yeah. to further those studies. You're absolutely right. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. And that entire segment there that you were explaining the study answered like, four questions that I just had about it, all about dopamine and the ventral striatal hypothalamic circuitry. So that was very elegantly explained. Thank you so much. Um, I had another question. I was just going to, I just lost it, Um, but I will continue with my script. Uh, So how can researchers now use the results that you just found to design and perform future studies on the neurobiology of eating disorders? Can this study that you just explained help inform new treatments? I mean, we touched on it a little bit, but what do you hope that, where do you hope the field will go next? So I would like to uh, specifically manipulate and facilitate uh, the recovery process by being more specific how we can improve outcome and being a trained psychotherapist who Mm -hmm. became then later a psychiatrist and researcher. I mean, I I strongly believe in psychotherapy, clearly. Mm -hmm. And I do not believe, from all I can say, that there will be a medication that will miraculously uh, cure anorexia nervosa. Right. I uh, doubt that. I also don't think for bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder. I, 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 I don't see that. Yeah. However, I see where a combination of psychotherapy with a biological intervention, which could be a medication or could be neuromodulation, yeah. such as transcranial magnetic stimulation. So you put a magnet on the head and you stimulate or uh, reduce activation in certain brain regions. Uh, I could see that as a very good approach to move things in a better direction faster. Yeah. And how I I like to think about it is the medication uh, opens the door, opens sort of an opportunity And then the uh, patient, with the help of the therapist, can work on going, walking through it. Yeah. That's that's how I how I envision this. Yeah. No, those are those are all great goals. Uh, And so, stepping back a little bit in terms of of research, that this was the question that I thought I forgot. 
is there a good animal model to study eating disorders? Because you can't really, animals don't really get eating disorders from what I know. So how can you induce that? Like, I know, I think there are exercise induced where hamster studies where you can cause them to run around and, and, and things like that. But other than that, I think the only way that we can get at the neurobiology is to look at, you know, mice, which, you know, you can do transgenic mice and, and whatnot. But yeah, I've always wondered that. Are there good animal models for eating disorders? So it's a really interesting question. And uh, let me put it that way. From my perspective, not being a, an animal researcher, but from my perspective, things are getting better. Mm -hmm. um, the most frequently used model is the activity-based uh, yeah. where the um, animal is food restricted and has access to a running wheel. Yeah. And then the animal uh, goes on the running wheel and essentially runs itself to death. Yeah. And uh, so that sheds some light on the idea that the food restriction must change something in your yeah. brain circuitry. Right. And think, well, maybe the running then also makes you feel better and stuff, right? And then they, they do more of the same. Uh, now, it started, maybe the problem started with that. Um, first of all, mostly male rats were used in, in the initial studies. So that was one problem. Yeah. <laughs> there was a push to, to uh, well, study female rats as well, right? Yeah. Because sex has a huge impact on, on brain and development. And, and yeah. But then what also is interesting, more recently in the past maybe five, six years, what has been known is that um, the rat brain actually reflects less well the human brain than the mouse brain. I studied and, the mouse brain, so I, I know yeah. that all too well. Yeah. So if you use the mouse brain, you're actually much, uh, getting much closer. Um, and... Uh, Stephanie Dulava, who is also at UCSD, she sort of designed a study based on a paper that I wrote uh, for humans, uh, motivation to eat and not to eat, uh, the, the um, sort of uh, where I, I go into sort of these conflicts, right? Yeah. So the neurobiological uh, conflicts between conscious and subconscious motivation. Um, and she found very much uh, in these uh, mice what sort of what, what seemed to be the case in humans. Um, so things are getting better. The problem yeah. is that the motivational aspect, uh, body image distortion, fear of getting yeah. fat, we don't really know. I mean, if you can model that in, in mice. Right. Maybe not as much. Right. That's where a crucial part comes in. Um, I mean, we're all, as humans, we're highly developed individuals, and we all have a free will, so to speak, right? Yeah. I think it's, it's a key part that we help people uh, change their conscious motivation. Yeah. That it becomes obvious pursuing the eating disorder is much more in your way than it really helps you. Right. Right? The eating disorder makes you, gives you some comfortable feeling. You know what you have. It gives you a sense of control yep. uh, because the world is difficult to manage. And that at least sort of gives you some comfort. Mm -hmm. Yet, um, it, is, it, is, it is a false, false message. Right. Um, and maybe in that thing, uh, a few years ago, I wrote a, a small book, more a, a 
parent guide really to to understand anorexia nervosa and one of my former patients made uh the the front cover illustration and what did she do she made a person out of the word trust so like i don't know how many hundred times she put the word trust into this person right Uh uh-huh i thought this is so fantastic because it captures an essence yeah captures an essence of sort of a lack of trust in maybe your own ability that things work out. There's a lot of insecurity, yeah. uncertainty, right? While those folks are so capable. And then I think it's key to help them on a, on a conscious level, help them to understand and see all those good things they can do and, and help them feel it. Yeah. And, but then it's not that simple because there are all these biological body-related things that, that have changed at the least in during the course of the eating disorder and that are not easy to change back. Yeah, exactly. It's a very complicated and layered, multiple layered issue. Um, so I've always wanted to go into researching eating disorders, but I've noticed that when I was in grad school trying to find a lab to do my dissertation, not a lot of people are funded for it. Um, it's mm-hmm. not very funded. Um, and it was just, that was where my passion was. And I ended up doing research in a completely different field. So I still follow closely the research and literature, um, mm-hmm. but I've always been interested in that. And I would love to to just do some of those experiments sometimes. Um, and then other times I'm glad that I left the lab. <laughs> um, would you anticipate the results from your most recent study to be different had you studied only males with and without eating disorders? There's not a lot of research and and literature on males with eating disorders. It's been really a big challenge. So I've been trying to recruit males for years. Mm. It's been uh, very, very challenging. Really? uh, So so that's really the, the main problem. But so on a theoretical basis, I would expect that there's a lot of overlap and similarities. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, if you have more or le- less uh, female or male sex hormones, that does have an impact. Yeah. It does have differential impacts. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I would think in general, we would see similar patterns Mm-hmm. But I could imagine that uh, there are also differences in terms of maybe learning differences in in level of dopamine related response. Yeah. But uh, it's it's difficult. I don't want to speculate too much. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, but I think to be honest, I think women are just particularly vulnerable. Women are mm-hmm. particularly vulnerable to changes of the dopamine system in relation to uh then low sex hormones that have gone down after food restriction oh so there's sort of um uh, so, so there's, there's clearly a vulnerability in in females compared to males and i think that's a reason why you find eating disorders much more in the, the female population in yeah women than in boys and men interesting uh, uh, there's also the hypothalamus, for instance, uh, which we said regulates appetite and other bodily signals, uh, seems to respond differently in, uh, in, in women and men and, and uh, things like that. 
which also makes sense. Uh, for instance, women have to be more sensitive because let's say you, you have a baby in, in, in you're pregnant, right? Right. Um, then you have to be sensitive to, to food intake and make sure that you eat enough. So, so there's a certain sensitivity, but maybe if you have also vulnerability that makes you too sensitive, then yeah. the system sensitizes too much. And that together with a maybe psychologically driven fear of fatness or yeah. all then it goes in, in the wrong direction, so to speak. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I would love to just compare the two, but it's, it's like you said, probably very hard to recruit men um, and enough to get a substantial sample size to have a rigorous study. So I'm sure that's, that's a difficult part. So switching gears a little bit, you have several other studies that you assessed alterations in brain structures among those with eating disorders and those that have recovered from an eating disorder and in your 2013 publication, you discovered that all eating disorder groups exhibited increased gray matter volume of the medial orbitofrontal cortex, as well as reduced white matter in the right temporal and parietal areas of the brain. So can you break that down a little bit, what these brain areas are and what the implications of those findings could mean? Yeah. So the orbital frontal cortex is a very interesting region. So it's right uh, between your eyes. Uh-huh. And Edmund Rose, he found out that that area is specific to what's called sensory-specific satiety. What he did was he did single neuron recordings from that area and in monkeys. And okay. he gave them bananas. And at yeah. first, they were spiking there and having the bananas. And at some point, nothing was spiking anymore. And, uh, and they also didn't want to have any bananas anymore. They gave them... <laughs> other bananas and sweeter bananas and whatever else, but nothing was happening anymore. Uh -huh. However, then he gave them peaches and then it was spiking like crazy and the monkeys ate the peaches. Okay? Uh -huh. So that means um, in, in, in human terms, uh, let's say it's Thanksgiving dinner and you had a lot of turkey, let's say, um, and you just can't see the turkey anymore because you're so <laughs> stuffed with the turkey. However, you still have room, so to speak, for the pumpkin pie. Right. So it's sensory-specific satiety. I had enough of one thing and another. This larger volume that we found at the time, uh, we hypothesized has to do or could be related to maybe a larger volume could mean uh, maybe being satiated faster because there are more oh. neurons maybe and being able to, to stop eating faster. However, I want to... Uh, caution a little bit because we haven't really figured out what a difference in volume, how that exactly translate that into in terms of behavior. Yeah. So I think we have to be very cautious with that. Um, I'm more um, confident or more feel, feel more clear about another study we did where we looked at uh, brain connectivity and we looked at uh, connectivity different systems and, and one uh, system is a salient system, salient circuitry. Uh, let's say you're sitting here at your desk and we talk. Still, your mind looks around. Maybe there's a bottle of water somewhere and you think, oh, maybe I'm thirsty. I want to drink something or you have some hunger somewhere and you think about food around. So this is a system that scans the environment for uh, things you might want, including okay. food or drink. 
And we found that in uh, folks with anorexia nervosa who were, were either ill or recovered, the salient system uh, was less active compared uh -huh. to the healthy controls. So when we work with folks with, let's say, anorexia nervosa, they sometimes say, well, you know what, I, I just forgot to eat. And what sometimes happens is that the therapist might say, yeah, right, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, you forgot, yeah. I know you're anxious, right? But to be honest, um, to a great degree, I believe people. Uh, there, there, is probably, there is probably an aspect of not thinking of it because the system that makes you look around and for some people more and it, for some people less, it's yeah. just not as and you are interested in writing your paper, you study, you work hard, and because you don't have this food salient system as active as somebody else has, you just don't think of it. And then 10 hours later, you miss two meals or three. Right. right. So uh, that, that is a finding that um, is, is easier translatable. Yeah. Um, and, and with again, with the... Uh, brain structure and volume. Uh, I think we still we still have to figure out more. How does it really translate into into actual behavior? Yeah, it's difficult because I did a lot of anatomy, but then I also tried to follow it up with physiology because in, I looked at the morphology of different cells in the brain, and then how does that change in different models of the brain and. So I'm, I'm always curious, the anatomy side of it, what does that mean physiologically or functionally, behaviorally? So that's why I was curious and, and asked that question. But that is fascinating with them um, because I, I myself, I have forgotten to eat and people don't believe me. Um, and I have to set alarms on my phone to remember to eat a snack and, and to, to constantly do that. So I, I, that actually explains a lot of my behavior and to make sure I stay on top of it. So that, that makes, I wonder then with binge eating disorder, does that, is it different as well? Like, did you study that specifically? Because they tend to be really strict during the day or they could forget during the day, but then at night they realize I missed two meals. I'm going to make up for it. So, um, so there's sort of a, a, a gradual change, I think, in behavior. And uh, in the, the large study that we recently published, so there were also folks with bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder included. And the typical pattern in folks with bulimia nervosa is to actively restrict during the day uh, because they are afraid of eating. It's just like folks with anorexia nervosa, and then they, they yeah. put the strength together, so to speak, just eat a little salad for lunch and nothing else during the day. But then at night, uh, also often triggered by stress and whatnot, um, then the binge comes in. Yeah. Right? And because they cannot control it anymore. Yeah. And uh, folks with binge eating disorder, they do not restrict. Uh, they have maybe normal meals. Um, they do not um, throw up like the folks with bulimia nervosa may do. Uh, but they have usually triggered by stress or anxiety, pressure, yeah. then uh, also binge eating episodes. Um, again, all folks with eating disorders, uh, such as anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, they, they have high body dissatisfaction. They try to, uh, at least that's what the study clearly suggests, stimulate this food control circuitry. Mm -hmm. However, because their body weight is high, 
the dopamine circuitry is desensitized, almost like in an addiction model. Yeah. Then the food control circuitry doesn't work well anymore. Yeah. And uh, that is probably why they, why they uh, just, or part of the reason why they cannot stop the, the amount of eating when they would have under normal conditions, let's call it enough, you know, or right. uh, enough what their body needs. What their body, right, to, right. Or requires. Um, so, so then we are in a, in a different, uh, different realm, so to speak, where we have to see, well, can we, uh, what can we do with the dopamine system here to strengthen food control, but also then work on thoughts, attitudes, certain yeah. to have a better um, relationship with food and eating. Although I do not like, uh, I mean, I just talked with a patient yesterday and she said, well, one of my goals is to get a better relationship with food and eating. But then I said, well, what do you think you really may need to develop? And then we came to the point, it's about a good relationship with your body. Yeah. Right? So where you can learn to accept yourself, take yeah. a lot of stress off, right? And then normalize your eating. Yeah. Right? And uh, the... the uh, Truth is probably also that if you're very overweight, it probably does not do you good. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as somebody with anorexia nervosa, we say, well, you have to go back into a normal range because otherwise it, it's not, it, you will not get out of this. If somebody is very overweight, probably that person also has to go back into a normal range. Yeah. Although with that, I know I'm, I'm, it's a very touchy topic and it's a, it's a difficult area, uh, but the, the data suggests that uh, if you're very overweight, it does affect your brain and it might cause you problems as much as if you're uh, very underweight. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just difficult because in our culture, we tend to put more emphasis on the overweight versus the underweight. I think there's just not enough discussion on the underweight portion of it, but both aspects of the spectrum are are not good for your health. Uh, so, I guess we'll, we'll try and wrap up here um, in a little bit because I know you don't have all the time in the world, even though I have a bunch of questions. Um, so what to you is the most challenging aspect of researching eating disorders? You touched on one, which is recruiting people, I think, which mm-hmm. is probably a hard part. Yeah, to me, it's sort of the ultimate, I call it psychosomatic illness. Mm. You have a certain biology, genetic predisposition, you have a certain um, thinking, cultural influences that shape how you would like to have things, then you might change your eating. And that together with your predisposing biology with traits such as high anxiety, perfectionism, then interact And then the eating disorder kind of hijacks that. It hijacks, you know, using the perfectionistic, hardworking traits, and you work hard towards the eating disorder. Yep. Then you want to do more of the same. Yeah. Because that's what feels right at the time for you, right? Mm -hmm. Parallel to that, 
by the way, the more you do that, you really this becomes you, 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 your normal behavior, right? Yeah, so you, right. Uh, that's where you build your memory and, and, and whatever around. You change your biology in the brain and the body. Mm-hmm. And then these changes psychologically, emotionally, biologically, they then create this vicious cycle. There's a vicious cycle of food restriction, yeah. a vicious cycle of uh, weight gain and not yeah. being able to, to control eating that is, is then so hard to break because mm-hmm. you have, and you, you, you mentioned it, the multi-layers, the many layers that are involved in that because you have so many layers that you have to, to pay attention to. Yeah. That you have to attend to and work with a person to, to make things gradually better. Right. The other thing is um, when you have the behavior that, that, that objectively is not helpful, let's call it, um, and you want to change that, it takes you probably three to six months until the new behavior becomes your new normal. So right. you really have to stick with it. Right. I, I often really cannot stop myself encouraging parents to say, okay, just stick with it. Just make sure you do yeah. the meal support and whatnot. And, and please don't give up, you know? Right. Right. Same with patience. Please don't give up. It takes a long, long, long time. It does. Uh, it does. Even years later. And it's very, it's actually, you can go back and revert back to the eating disorder behaviors much quicker than it is to maintain the healthy behaviors. And I think it goes back to the circuitry problems because maybe we're predisposed to override our food hungers and we have to actively override the override and tell ourselves we have to eat uh, all the time. So it's, it is difficult. It's living with it and, and try and trying to recover and maintain healthy weight. Uh, So that, that leads to my last question, which I'll close with. So what would be your advice for someone that's maybe listening to this podcast and, and they're just, they're struggling with their body image with possibly an eating disorder, but they're just too afraid to take the first step and to seek help and, and to go to someone. Uh, I, I really would like to encourage that person to be objective with her or himself. And I mean, there's a lot of fear, right? If I go mm-hmm. into therapy, then I lose this eating disorder, right? Yep. I'm kind of like, they're going to take this away from me. This is sort exactly. of fear. And I totally understand uh, that this is very scary. Mm-hmm. It is also frustrating because you may have worked so hard on that. <laughs> You've worked so hard on exercising, doing what you thought was the right thing and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, uh, these, these uh, doctors and whatever come along and say, no, no, can't do that. This is, this is unhealthy, right? I mean, who likes that? Nobody right. likes that. So I have, a, I have a tremendous amount of empathy <laughs> for people <laughs> in that position. Mm-hmm. Yet... Uh, I, I like to, to sit down with them and think, well, how, how well is it really working, right? How much does it interfere with your life? Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite questions is, um, would you like to be a slave? And then nobody <laughs> wants to be a slave, right? Right. But I see the eating disorder being, making you a slave. Exactly. Because, because of some circuits and and what not has changed, right? The, the eating disorder is abusing you. Yeah. The eating disorder is torturing you. 
I like to think about it as an abusive relationship. Yeah. Right? And we all right. know, in all fairness, if somebody is in a human abusive relationship, we also know how hard that is to change and get out. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, my point is I have a lot of empathy for, for, for anyone with that. And by the same time, please be open that this is not, not the best way of living. And please be open that there are other ways of living life and living life in a better way. Right. And where you can, uh, you know, where you can accomplish dreams, where you can accomplish things in your life. Exactly. Uh, what I find so sad is this, and, and that's, I think, important, especially for young people who, who sort of are in the beginning of an eating disorder. Keep in mind is the eating disorder takes so much away from you. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, uh, when I think how, many, how much time some people spend in therapy, in hospitals, and whatever else, it, it doesn't let you develop your life in a, in, a, in a good way, right? Yeah. So please be open and don't be afraid. Yeah. Um, of course, that's easier said than done. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it, is, it is absolutely worth it. To, to work on, on the eating disorder. It is also possible to recover. Uh, yeah. It's not easy. It takes, it takes quite a while. Uh, yet, it is also not just one or the other. It's like working on your eating disorder treat is like a train track, I want to look at it. So you have like two tracks. One is you work on the eating disorder to get better, right? Whatever, all these things that are involved with eating normally and not binging, purging and whatnot. But parallel to that, key is it's about important to developing uh, your life. Yeah. And developing good things that are fun to live for. Right. That also means to uh, learn to get over the many worries you may have, that you may have all your life and that are hard to, to get over. It's maybe uh, there's a social anxiety problem, right? Yeah. People get very nervous, anxious in social situations and that then also is part of the depression that's part of uh, the eating disorder because shape and weight and stuff like that. So, so there's a lot of associated problems that, that are often not, not as closely paid attention to. So you want to you wanna treat the eating disorder, that's sort of key. In parallel, you want to uh, treat other things like depression and anxiety and develop a, a, a life path that you, you, you find passion for and that you feel like, boy, this is, this is fun. This is something good to live towards. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And it's as someone that was really scared to do, I, I understand how hard it is to let go because I've, like we said at the beginning, you find comfort in your eating disorder. It becomes your identity. So you feel like you're losing a part of yourself when you step out and, and open up to someone and give yourself to therapy and doctors. Um, but what I try to tell people that, that come to me when they're nervous or even through this podcast is that the life after an eating disorder is so much better and more rewarding. And I can't tell you how many social events I skipped out on in, in my prime years in high school, middle school, because I was really suffering. And I didn't go because I didn't know what food was going to be there. I didn't, I was too scared. So I let the eating disorder win. And finally, I just had to say, I can't let this define me anymore. And I want a life. I want to be married with kids and enjoy life apart from this. 
but it's so scary to think about. So just one day at a time, that's, that's how I try to live my life now. Um, and it's, it's hard. Uh, so I appreciate, and I like the train track analogy. I think that's, that's spot on. Yeah, no, this, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to share with me your research, your perspective, your background, like all of this, it's, it's fascinating. And I could nerd out and talk to you all day, I think. Um, but I really appreciate you taking the time to, to be with me today. And I wish you all the best in, in your lab, your future endeavors. And thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> Once again, that was my husband, ladies and gentlemen, Brad Wilkerson, back by popular demand. I, I hope everyone enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Frank. His research is truly fascinating, and I think I could have made a three-hour-long episode on just this one research paper alone, uh, but I didn't want to bore everyone with all of my nerdy questions. Uh, but in the meantime, I do encourage you to read the rest of his incredible work and, and really kind of dig into the literature about the neurobiology of eating disorders. And he's just one of many researchers out there, and I hope to bring many more to the podcast. And I want to end with that one uh, comment that Dr. Frank made about juggling balls in the air. You know, when you're treating an eating disorder, it's, it might be easier to juggle one ball, um, but it's a lot harder to juggle three balls in the air. But that's what it's like to try and treat someone with an eating disorder and go through recovery for that matter. You're not just treating the eating disorder, which is one ball, but you're also treating two other balls, the depression and anxiety. And I think there's such a stigma in our culture today about taking antidepressants still, you know, for whatever reason. I myself felt really guilty for a while for having to take antidepressants. And, and to be honest, for a while, I was really scared to take it because I, I was afraid that it would increase my appetite and my hunger and that would lead to weight gain, which is, of course, goes back to the fear of gaining weight, which is anorexia. Um, but without the antidepressants, my anxiety is just all over the place. My eating disorder thoughts are much, much worse. So you really do need that medication to really help stabilize the neurochemistry in your brain. So I encourage you, if that if you're really struggling with that, um, reach out to me. I'm always happy to talk about that. But you know, don't don't feel bad about taking um, medicine and getting the therapy and and the the medication that you need to take care of yourself. That that's what matters. Um, and this is your weekly reminder because that's a nice segue into whatever the scale says and whatever um, the social media says. The filter that they choose and, and the amount of photoshopped images that you see, none of that actually dictates or matters in your worth. None of that actually influences and, and makes makes you a good person. You know, your character and your kindness and, and your personality, that's what matters. So don't be afraid to take up space. Don't be afraid to use that voice. Don't be afraid to go out and explore the world and try that one meal that you've been dying to try because you deserve it and you deserve health and you deserve happiness. So I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of the week. See you guys next time.